in uh, your Bibles. And this evening we're going to uh, be looking at verses uh, 15 down to verse 21. And before, uh, as you're turning to that, I'm just going to flick the plug on so the laptop doesn't die. Matthew chapter 12 and from verse 15 to 21. On July the 26th, uh, 1945, the results came in for the first general election in the United Kingdom for 10 years. Uh, There had been a national cross-party government in place since 1929, which was to deal with the Great Depression uh, and then with the Second World War. Uh, This man uh, was the Prime Minister, uh, Winston Churchill. He'd been Prime Minister since 1940 and had led the country to victory in the Second World War. Churchill was a popular, charismatic, huge personality. And because of him and his personality, it was expected that the Conservative Party which he led would be victorious in the general election. On the morning of the announcement of the results, the Daily Mail newspaper warned that if defeated as expected, Labour must accept an adverse verdict like men and not like spoiled children. The press all expected a conservative victory. The Labour Party was led by the other man now on the screen. Uh, His name was Clement Attlee. And he was a man more opposite to Churchill than anyone else you could possibly find. Whilst Churchill was famous for his rousing speeches, Attlee was not an engaging speaker. In fact, when he went to America uh, to speak... After Churchill had already been there, they didn't even know who he was, and they just thought he was a terrible public speaker. He came across as boring. Whilst Churchill's cabinet meetings were filled with hours of monologue, with him just going on and on and on, Attlee's meetings were short and sharp, and he would get through the business really quickly. Churchill was tempestuous and difficult. Attlee was quiet and a conciliator. Everybody knew everything about Churchill. Attlee was notoriously difficult to get to know. He was a very private man. And so you can imagine the shock on the 26th of July 1945 when the results came in and the Labour Party stormed to victory with a majority of 145 seats. It was the largest majority for a single political party in British parliamentary history. And it was the first majority uh, of that kind for any uh, government, but the first majority for a socialist government in British history. The press, mostly conservative supporting, had got the result completely wrong. They had misread the public mood entirely. The victory was unexpected, but they should have seen it coming. The public had trusted the bombastic Churchill to lead them in wartime, but they wanted the quiet and businesslike Attlee 
to rebuild the country during peacetime. People put their hope in Clement Attlee to rebuild Britain. In fact, in their election manifesto, the Labour Party even said that they wanted to build the new Jerusalem. Well, why is it that I am telling you this historical anecdote? Well, in Matthew's Gospel, we have been looking at Jesus claiming to be God's Messiah. He has been showing it in his words and in his actions. But in verse 14, where we left off last week, the religious leaders wanted to kill him. Like the press and many in high society in 1945, the religious leaders and the Jewish people did not expect their Messiah to speak and act in the way that Jesus did. But if, like in 1945, the leaders had looked a bit more deeply, not at public opinion, but at their scriptures, they would have known differently. Because with Jesus, we should expect the unexpected. In this section of Matthew, we're looking at different responses to Jesus. And here we see one of the few right responses in chapters 11 and 12. And the right response is down there in verse 21. It's the last verse of uh, our passage this morning, this evening. It says, In his name, the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the nations will put their hope. Do you see that there? In his name, the nations will put their hope. So what's the right response? The right response is, in his name, the name of Jesus, the nations put their hope. To put their hope in something, or our hope in something, is to trust someone or something for something good and better that is coming that will last. We put our hope in someone if we expect them and we trust them to bring something good and something better that will last. And the world offers many people and many things to put our hope in, doesn't it? We see religious leaders, we see financial institutions, we have technology, there are political parties, all of which promise us your life will be better if you put your trust in us or in what we provide. And they all have something in common as, uh, as, as they try and entice you to put your trust in them. They are all either charismatic personalities or are led by, companies are led by charismatic personalities. They are media savvy. They have a plan that sounds really good, even if it's a bit vague. They offer comfort and they offer you your best life right now. But the big problem that they all have in common is that they do not really give us the rest that they promise. There is no religion outside of biblical Christianity. There is no financial institution, no technology, no, there's no phone or uh, anything else that will give you what you really need that will last. Which is why, as we come to the Bible, we see Jesus and we read that in him, in his name, we are to put our hope. But he is so different 
from the world's idea of a deliverer. Rather than meeting the worldly expectations of the charismatic, media-savvy leader, Jesus is quite different. And that's what we see here in Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 to 21. People expect one thing, but what Jesus is, is something else entirely. Look at verses 15 to 21. Aware of this, that is verse 14, that they want to kill him, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. This is God's word. What we see here is Jesus being the Messiah that God's people should expect. And so he is the Messiah that we should put our hope and trust in. And through this passage, there are a number of points that Matthew highlights about Jesus that shows us why he's unexpected to the world, but he's the one that we should put our hope in. First of all, we see that Jesus is the Messiah that is conformed to God's plan. We have seen throughout the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus is God. Through his teaching, his miracles, his sinless life, we see this is God, God with us. But notice how Jesus acts in a way that you might not expect from a self-proclaimed Messiah who is God. In verse 14, the Pharisees want to kill him. Jesus is God. So how might you expect almighty God to react to the Pharisees wanting to kill him? If you had all power and someone comes up to you and says, I'm going to kill you, you're not going to be worried. You're going to try and wipe them out probably, aren't you? You've got that power. You can totally destroy them. You don't even have to touch them. We've seen Jesus can just speak. He can speak a word and those Pharisees can turn to dust. So notice the surprise in verse 15. He is aware of what? He is aware that the Pharisees want to kill him. And so what does he do? It says, Jesus withdrew from that place. He's aware they want to kill him. And because of that, he withdraws from that place. So he's able, he has the power to wipe them out, but he withdraws. So is Jesus being a coward here? Well, no. When the time comes for Jesus to die, we see him face it with courage, but it's not the time for him to die yet. In John's Gospel, we read the phrase, his hour has not yet come. That's what's going on here. So he withdraws. He doesn't withdraw because he's scared. He doesn't withdraw because he is unable to defeat the Pharisees if they wanted to stick a knife in him. 
He withdraws because he's conformed to God's plan. He will die at the time when he chooses he will die. And then we see this uh, large crowd following him at the end of verse 15. And he heals all who are ill. A worldly Messiah with this kind of power would want to set up shop, wouldn't they? If you've got this power to perform these miracles, a worldly Messiah would set up shop and say, Come, look at what I can do. I can heal all your diseases. Come to me. Look at, look at what I'm able to do. And they'd promote their abilities and all their power. But again, what does Jesus do? Look at verse 16. He warns them not to tell others about him. So he's threatened with death and he could wipe them out, but he withdraws. He heals all who are sick and he could advertise his healing shop. But he tells them, don't tell anyone about me. Now, on the one hand, we can say that Jesus perhaps doesn't want the publicity, which brings unhelpful expectations. Uh, When he feeds the 5,000 in John's Gospel, we read that when he performed that miracle, people wanted to make him king by force. It wasn't helpful. It wasn't what Jesus wanted to do. But there's a a deeper reason, a deeper reason. plan that's going on here then merely the publicity is unhelpful and we find that in verse 17 that Jesus is conforming to a plan which has been in place a very long time it says this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah so what Jesus was doing his withdrawing from conflict his not advertising his healing power was done to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah A prophecy that was spoken hundreds of years before. He was there to fulfill the plan that God had for him to fulfill. He was there to fulfill what God had spoken through Isaiah. He was there to conform to the plan of God. The main bulk of this section of Matthew uh, that we've just read is is this quotation from Isaiah 42. Isaiah was prophesying 700 years before Jesus had come. And in Isaiah's prophecy, he speaks lots about the coming Messiah and about what the Messiah would be like. And it was a Messiah that was totally unexpected from the point of view of the world, but a Messiah that Jesus fulfills perfectly. And it is this Messiah, the one that fulfills the plan of God, that Jesus fulfills. Often when we think of leaders or monarchs or saviours, they don't conform to a plan except their own plan. They're what we might call mavericks. They do their own thing, they go their own way, and they'll promote their own plan and say, this is how I'm going to make your life amazing. But what does Jesus do? He submits himself to the plan of his father. And we can have lots of plans for our lives. It's good to have a plan for your life, to to figure out what you want to do, where you want to go. But our plans need to conform with God's will for our lives. And God's will for our lives is found in his scriptures. God's will for us is to be holy, 
It's to submit to the authority of his word. It's to conform to his plan. What we do with our bodies needs to conform to God's plan. What we do with our money needs to conform to God's plan. How we use our time needs to be thought about and used in a way which conforms to God's plan. How we treat other people, how we conduct our relationships needs to conform to God's plan. And God's plan is different from the world's plan. And so your life, like Jesus, as you conform to his plan, will be different from the world. We will be different. We will be unexpected. And like Jesus, we may face opposition because our plan is conforming to a totally different king than anywhere, anyone that the world is following. But God's plan, as we've seen in Matthew's Gospel, is the only way to true rest. It's the only way to true satisfaction. And it follows in the footsteps of Jesus our King, who always conformed to God's plan. So, number one, Jesus is the Messiah we can put our hope in because Jesus conforms to God's plan. But as we delve into this passage from Isaiah a little bit more, we see that the Messiah is God's is chosen as God's servant. The Messiah is chosen as God's servant. Look at there, the, the very beginning of verse 18. Here is my servant whom I have chosen. The Messiah who is a servant might seem like a very unexpected thing, wouldn't it? I mean, if you're Messiah, would you be a servant? Again, do the leaders of this world declare themselves to be servants? But with Jesus, he is called my servant. In the Bible, when uh, God declares someone to be my servant, it's actually a very important title. It refers to one whom God is going to use in a very special way. And God has chosen Jesus to be his servant. And God says, here he is. This is the one I have chosen. This is the one I love. This is the one in whom I delight. And it's a unique choosing. He doesn't say that about anybody else. He doesn't say about any other person, this is the one I love. This is the one I delight in. It's Jesus. He is my servant. The only one person that God truly loves and delights in in this way. And that's because Jesus is sinless. God uh, cannot delight in sin. But because Jesus is sinless, God delights in him. And we saw that at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 and verse uh, 17. As Jesus comes out of the water, the voice from heaven says, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. All other kings fail, and so cannot be delightful to God. But Jesus is the sinless Son of God, and so God can say of him, This is my servant, whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. We put our hope in Jesus because he alone is the son in whom God is well pleased with and delighted with. 
And so he is the servant who is chosen by God to fulfill the plan to save us from our sins. No one else can save us from sin, only Jesus. And it is therefore to him whom we must submit, it is to him whom we give our allegiance to. And when we give our our lives to Jesus and we have forgiveness of our sins and we've been cleansed because he's paid for our sins, then God delights in us because our sin is forgiven. Isn't that wonderful? That God delights in us when our sins are forgiven. He can say to us, like he says to Jesus, this is my son or my child who I love. In him or her, I am well pleased. Because Jesus has taken our sin and has cleansed us and has given us a new heart. But this choosing is also why Jesus is not worried or anxious about these Pharisees. He's not worried. He's not there fretting that, oh, I better hide from them because they might kill me. He's completely confident in his Father because he's chosen by him. And for us too, life can throw all sorts of threats at us, but nobody can pluck you from our Father's hands. Nobody can take away your place in God's kingdom. You are a chosen servant of God if you are a Christian. And so we can have confidence in our lives that we are secure in his hands. So the Messiah is conformed to God's plan. He is chosen as God's servant. And in the next verses, we see that the Messiah proclaims God's message. Look at the next uh, part of, at the end of verse 18. And he will proclaim justice to the nations. When God puts his spirit on someone, it is for the purpose of fulfilling a task. And the spirit comes upon Jesus at his baptism to fulfill the task of proclaiming a message. And that message is justice to the nations. And that's not the message that the Jewish people expected to hear. It was an unexpected message. It shouldn't have been unexpected. It's there in the Old Testament, but it was unexpected. They were looking for someone that would benefit them and them alone, their own kind. They were looking for one who would perhaps uh, bring dominance in their land over the Roman occupiers. But Jesus' message is very different. He comes and preaches justice, not just to Israel, but to the nations. In one sense, we see him doing this in the way that he is putting wrongs right, in terms of his miracles. His miracles did not discriminate against against non-Jews. For example, in chapter 8, we saw the healing of the centurion's servant, a a non-Jewish person. And if you just turn there to Matthew chapter 8, look at what Jesus says in verse 11. In verse 11 of Matthew chapter 8, he says... I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The east and the west are nations outside of Israel that will come and join with Israel around the table where Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are eating. That means that there is a place for Uh, for them in in God's kingdom. There's a place for you and I who are not Jews in the kingdom of God. There is justice for the nations. So do we see that as Jesus heals people? But as Jesus preached God's kingdom was coming, he calls people to repent 
and to turn to him because his kingdom is at hand. And really we see him deal with injustice by paying for sin on the cross. As he preaches his kingdom is at hand, we see that kingdom come as he dies for sin on the cross. Justice is done at Calvary. As he hangs on the cross and he pays in full the debt that we have to God, the penalty for sin that we owe, that we can never pay. But on the cross, Jesus brings justice to all those who put their faith in him. There is a debt to God that is right that we pay. It's just that we pay it. A debt of sin. But we can never pay it. And so Jesus pays it in our place. Justice. Justice for the nations. And so if Jesus is the Messiah, you would expect him to proclaim justice to the nations. And he does that. He invites people from all nations to come to him. He dies on the cross to pay the penalty for all people who put their faith in him. And we should be doing the same. We have the same message, unexpected, offensive to the world. It's tempting to keep quiet. It's tempting to miss bits out. But Jesus proclaims justice to the nations, and so too should we. So God's Messiah is conformed to God's plan, is chosen as God's servant, proclaims God's message. And fourthly, God's Messiah is humble. Look at verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Now, when I first read this, it sounded a bit contradictory, doesn't it? Uh, He's going to proclaim justice to the nations. Proclaim means to speak, but no one's going to hear his voice. So what's the point in proclaiming if no one can hear him? Well, this isn't talking about silence, but about attitude, the attitude of humility. In other words, it's saying here, the Messiah is not going to be a show-off. He's not going to have needless arguments with people, but would rather remain silent. He doesn't put on a show. He is not arrogant. He speaks with dignity and gentleness, albeit with passion. How different that is from what the world expects of a leader. The world's expectation of a leader is someone that is charismatic, someone that is uh, good-looking and looks good on the television and all those kind of things. That's what the world expects of a leader, someone that can hold their own. But Jesus here is one that doesn't quarrel or cry out. His voice is not one that everyone hears in the streets. He's humble. He's not a rabble-rouser. He does his work quietly without a fuss. And that's partly why in verse 16 we read of him warning people not to tell others about him. It's because the Messiah is humble. He's not a show-off. How very different to that we can be. How often we can do service in the church and in the community so that we can get a pat on the back. How often we can serve so that people can applaud us and say, look at how great they are. Rather, we should take on board what Jesus lives out and what he says. Look at Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. 
If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So the humility of Christ is shown in his attitude towards his work. But it's also shown in how he treats people. Look at verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. The Messiah is humble, but in verse 20, we see that the Messiah reveals God's heart. What is Isaiah talking about when he is thinking of reeds and wicks? In order to understand this, we need to uh, think back into what was going on at, at this particular time. What, were, what are reeds and wicks? We don't tend to use them uh, these days. Well, reeds were what you may think of in the marshes. They were, uh, they were um, plentiful, they stood upright and were straight, and they were used for a variety of reasons. Uh, they were used for measuring, uh, they were used to support uh, things, and they were even used in musical instruments. And in fact, I think you still have reeds and stuff like the clarinet, don't you? Yeah. So that's... Um, I'm not musical at all, so I'm looking at people that can play. Uh, So you use reeds in musical instruments. But when a reed was bruised, or it was no longer straight, it was no longer useful. And there were loads of them. And so what would you do with a reed that's broken or unuseful? You would just pick it up and put it in the bin or throw it out. There were plenty of other reeds to replace them. So you didn't need to keep and repair a bruised reed. Well, what about the wick? Well, the wick was a strip of cloth that was uh, used to provide light in a lamp. And if the wick was smouldering at the end of its um, at the at the end of itself, it was uh, smoky, and it would produce uh, the pollution of smoke, and it would be unpleasant, and it would smell bad, and it would hurt your eyes. And so, again, the normal thing with a wick that was reaching the end of its life would be just to throw it away and to get a new one. You would put it out, put it in the bin, get a new wick. But it says here that the Messiah will not break bruised reeds and he will not snuff out smouldering wicks. What's going on here is this. His followers who in the world's eyes are useless and just a nuisance, like the smoke, in God's eyes are ones who can be used again and restored, not discarded. Now, before God, all of us are useless. He doesn't need any of us. He is God. But God cares about us enough to take hold of us and make us useful for him. God's heart is gentle. When we fail, he does not discard us. He restores us. When we feel we don't fit in and we feel like we're a nuisance, God doesn't leave us. He places us in the family of the church. When we feel like I can't make any difference in the world or I can't do anything in God's kingdom, God takes us and he wants to do amazing things through us for his glory. When we suffer and we feel that we are bruised, God takes us and helps us through and tenderly cares for us, not allowing us to be snuffed out. God does not want the arrogant and worldly wise in his kingdom. 
He wants the bruised reeds and the smouldering wicks. Isn't that just a lovely image? A lovely image that he doesn't want people who are amazing in the world's eyes. He wants those who are bruised, those who are uh, smouldering, those whom anyone else in the world would throw away. And again, how unexpected from a leader in the world's expectations. The people that the world would want on their team are the ones that are the achievers, the talented, the ones who provide results immediately. But God brings into his kingdom the vulnerable, the damaged, the pains in the necks, and he patiently gives them opportunity to succeed in his kingdom. That's what Jesus does. Look at his 12 disciples. They were scorned by the wise of the world. Unlearned people from Galilee they were. But God used them to establish the church that's still alive and growing today. If you look at the history of the church or look at one another in this very room where we are a bunch of people who are bruised reeds and smouldering wicks, nuisances that God wants to use for his glory. Isn't that great? Because if it doesn't say a bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out, but it says he'll throw away the bruised reeds and get better ones, then we've not got any hope at all, have we? But because Jesus does this, he is the one in whom we can hope. So, God's Messiah is conformed to God's plan. He's chosen as God's servant, proclaims God's message. He is humble. He reveals God's heart. And finally... Against all the expectations of this world, the Messiah completes God's victory. The Messiah will continue to restore the bruised reeds and the smouldering wicks, but only for a limited time. When will that work end? We'll look at the end of verse 20. Till he has brought justice through to victory. Now justice, we've looked at that word a little bit, but just to define that, justice is restoring what is right. And ultimately we've seen that is on the cross where our sin is paid for and we are made right with God. The victory of the cross was confirmed when Jesus rose again from the dead on the third day. Sin has been paid for. Death has been defeated. There is now victory because he has risen from the dead. Justice on the cross is brought through to victory the empty tomb, you see? And after the resurrection, Jesus ascended to heaven and he sends, sends the Holy Spirit to work in his people and that work of bringing bruised reeds and smouldering wicks continues to this very day into his kingdom. And he will continue to, to bring bruised reeds and smouldering wicks into his kingdom until the day when he returns. And when Jesus comes again, we as his people will meet him in the air and will be like him. And he will judge his enemies, those who have rejected him. And on that day, justice will finally be brought through to victory. And how do we know that this will actually happen? How do we know that this part of the story, which we're still waiting for, how do we know this will happen? We know this will happen because it has happened in the sense that Jesus has risen from the dead. The empty tomb, Paul writes, is the first fruits of our resurrection. And so when we wonder, is Jesus really coming? Is, am I really going to go be with him? We can look at the empty tomb and say, ah, but it's happened there. And so it will happen again. 
We know we will rise again because the one who has gone before us has risen again. And so we know that he will continue to to save, continue to bring bruised reeds and smoldering wicks and gather them up and restore them and make them whole until he comes again, when justice will be brought through to victory. Jesus has shown that although he may not be the Messiah the world expected, he is certainly the Messiah that God promised. And because of that, as we read in verse 21, in his name, the nations will put their hope. In 1945, many people in this nation put their hope in Atlee's Labour government to build a new Jerusalem. But by 1951, just six years later, Winston Churchill was back in 10 Downing Street with a conservative majority government. That massive Labour majority was destroyed. No political leader is able to fulfil the hopes of a nation. They are expected to, but those expectations are totally unrealistic. But Jesus, he fulfils the hopes of Not one nation, but all nations. The hope that we have of heaven where we'll be with God forever will be fulfilled because of the work he has done as Messiah to save us from sin. No earthly government will create a new Jerusalem. But at the end of the Bible, a new Jerusalem is actually described. You see, Clement Attlee and many other political leaders have stolen the phrase New Jerusalem from God. It is at the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 22. Listen to what the Bible says. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city, On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is describing what Revelation 21 verse 10 says is the holy city, Jerusalem. Isaiah wrote 700 years before the Messiah came the first time. His work continues until he comes again, when one day we will be in this place, the new Jerusalem. That promise will be fulfilled. We can put our hope in Jesus. Well, we're going to finish uh, by singing. Uh, Isaiah uh, talk, uh, has lots of servant songs about Jesus, and he talks about Jesus as the man of sorrows, and we're going to sing uh, Man of Sorrows, Lamb of God, and in this song it talks about the justice we have because of our debt being paid by Jesus, and it talks of the empty tomb and the hope that we have because of that. So let's close by standing and singing Man of Sorrows, Lamb of God. Let's worship and celebrate that Jesus Christ is the only one whom the nations can put their hope in.